I'm Professor Kim Felmingham. I'm a professor in the School of uh, Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne um, and I hold a chair position in clinical psychology there. So I've got multiple roles really. I'm a cl practicing clinical psychologist. Uh, so I teach training clinical psychologists how to be clinical psychologists. Um, I also see clients uh, one day a week uh, and specialize in treating trauma, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but also childhood trauma and complex trauma. And I also do research. So my research sort of, again, is centered around trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. I do some neuroscience work. So that's where we're looking at brain function um, in the uh, scanners and uh, looking at emotional tasks, particularly there. And I'm also running clinical trials on how to develop better new treatments for uh, PTSD. And I also do a lot of work in uh, memory because obviously with trauma, one of the main sort of things that happens is people get these um, very strong memories and intrusive memories of the trauma. So I, I study what are the mechanisms underlying those sort of really strong memories we get of the trauma. Um, and also I'm looking at how we regulate fear because that's another core aspect, I guess, of trauma and PTSD. So I sort of juggle all those things. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> really nice to have you here. Um, you're giving a plenary talk at the conference. This is the uh, Society for Mental Health Research Conference that's happening in Hobart. What are you planning to talk about? So look, I think um, probably some of the areas that are real passions of mine in terms of both research, but as well as having my clinician hat on. So, um, you know, I think any of the work that I do in neuroscience and looking at the brain is always orienting to how can we develop better treatments for PTSD, but not just PTSD, also trauma in general, because I think trauma is not just post-traumatic stress disorder. It also can really have a powerful impact on the brain, especially childhood trauma, without people actually having full-blown PTSD. So um, in the talk, I'm going to cover some of the more recent sort of neuroscience findings. How does trauma affect the brain. So what do we see in terms of brain function and how it's dysregulated in post-traumatic stress disorder? So that's really the pointy end of the spectrum. And there we see um, a really clear and intriguing pattern where we see, you know, really hyperactivation or a lot of excessive activation in our arousal networks in our um, emotion and fear processing centres. And we seem to see a hypo activation or reduced activity in the brain in inhibitory frontal pathways. So we know that our frontal lobes in our brain, especially our um, ventral frontal areas, actually inhibit some of these fear networks and arousal networks and threat detection networks. But in PTSD, um, that inhibition is actually impaired. It's, it's not functioning in an adaptive way. And what that leads to is that people continually have heightened threats detection devices. They have heighter, ongoing high arousal levels. They have ongoing sort of uh, fear responses to trauma reminders. And, you know, if you talk to someone clinically who has post-traumatic stress disorder, if they get a trauma reminder, 
um, it might be of a green car that was, you know, in the in the car accident, this particular colour of green, they will have a fear response that's like, almost like they, they say, it's almost like you were back there re-experiencing the trauma. And so we know that there's brain pathways that are explaining that, this overactivation of these threat detection and very basic arousal networks and um, fear processing networks. So we'll cover that area of the brain. But extending beyond that, I'm um, really interested in childhood trauma. And so, you know, it's actually so common, it's um, really awful that it is so common. And childhood trauma is a bit different. It can result in PTSD, absolutely. But people can experience childhood trauma and it can still have um, effects on the brain and on how people are processing threats around them, even without developing PTSD. And so we're beginning to recognise this more and more. So I'll also cover a bit on how is the brain impacted when we're looking at um, cumulative trauma exposure, which often happens with childhood trauma, versus if you have a, just one accident in adulthood. And these are really quite intriguing um, questions. Um, Another area that's really of interest is does the age that you are as a child or through adolescence, when you get the trauma, does that have a different or specific impact on brain function? So we call these critical sensitive periods. And we know, for example, that adolescence is actually a time in the brain where your brain's changing very dramatically it's going through a lot of neural development neural pruning and if you have trauma exposure in that particularly early adolescent period it has really dramatic effects on how well your frontal lobes can inhibit the arousal networks and so on and interestingly very early childhood trauma what we're seeming to see from some of the recent work we're doing is it results in more of a freezing response rather than a hyperarousal or fear response. So, you know, the trauma field's now moving to looking at these more nuanced questions, which is really important because trauma doesn't just equal PTSD. Um, we can have significant effects on the brain even without post-traumatic stress disorder developing. Um, and... You know, also, um, we're also recognising there's different patterns or types of post-traumatic stress disorder. So for many people, they have those sort of Hollywood symptoms, the fear-based PTSD, where they've got the intrusive memories and the nightmares and the really intense panic to trauma reminders. But there's about 30% of people who have what we call dissociative PTSD. And that is where they just numb out. Instead of having a fear response, they often freeze, um, lose awareness or, or um, sort of become dissociative and feel really spacey and numb out. And so that's, we know actually now there's good evidence that there's different brain pathways that are working um, underlying dissociative PTSD. And um, what that is, is actually a reversed pattern. So where we normally get reduced activity in those frontal inhibition networks, it's overactive and we get this sort of numbing or blunting of the amygdala and all these fear-based networks in dissociative PTSD. So, you know, I think a, a message there is um, 
we can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think the field's increasingly recognising that. We need to start to look at what are people's different symptom profiles, what are their, what's the nature of their trauma in terms of cumulative childhood or adulthood, and how does that affect brain function. So I'll be covering a broad sort of area looking at that. Um, and then what I will talk about sort of in the last part of the talk is more about, well, how can we actually new, use neuroscience to develop better treatments for PTSD? Um, and this is more oriented around PTSD perhaps than trauma impacts at this stage, looking at the treatments that we do offer. And, um, you know, I've been doing, so at the moment I'm running a clinical trial um, which is looking at how we can use exercise as a way to sort of improve our exposure-based treatments for PTSD. And that's all based out of neuroscience, actually. So, um, you know, when we think about the gold standard treatment for PTSD is exposure therapy. And so what that involves is um, we might be uh, exposing ourselves to the memory of the trauma. So we sit with the therapist in a, in a session and we go through the trauma memory in detail. And we're really trying to get that fear activation while we're there in the room. But nothing bad happens when we go through the memory. We're in a safe place. And so that is an example of fear extinction where we confront the feared situation, which is the memory, but where nothing bad happens. So we actually learn our fear comes down and progressively we learn to regulate and reduce our fear that way. And we also do a different form of exposure where we actually, it's a very gradual stepped way of doing it, where we actually confront things that we might be avoiding in our daily life that remind us of the trauma and we gradually start confronting those situations. And again, learning nothing bad happens when we do and gradually over time our fear comes down and that also is a fear extinction process which means we confront the fear um, but when there's no aversive consequence when, when we're confronting that situation we learn to regulate our fear we've got a new learning which inhibits the old fear learning if you like and so i do a lot of work on looking at how um fear extinction which is thought to underlie exposure therapy we have some tasks where we can look at fear extinction and i've been looking at different sort of brain um, sort of systems that might influence fear extinction and so we've got one which is looking at endocannabinoids and so i've had a phd student recently um, finished some fantastic work where we've started to translate some animal work which shows that if you increase endocannabinoids in the brain, you can improve fear extinction learning. And that's also been found in humans in a few studies, but he's actually translated that into the PTSD field. And we've found that actually if we can improve endocannabinoids, then we can improve fear extinction. So the next question is, does that then, if we can increase endocannabinoids in the brain, can we improve our response to exposure therapy? So that's one sort of area I will cover. And another one is looking at another sort of um, neurotrophin. So it's a it's a um, called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF for short. And that actually is really important for our neural um, genesis um, and learning and memory. It's fundamentally crucial for having effective learning and memory. So it's a, it's a protein that occurs in the brain and it can lead to this um, neurogenesis. 
Um, and what we know with people with PTSD, there's some evidence that they have low levels of BDNF. And we also know that BDNF, if it's low, impairs fear extinction learning, which we think is underlying PTSD. So the next question is, if we can increase BDNF, can we improve fear extinction? And we've found that. So I've done some recent studies showing that actually when we raise BDNF or if we've got higher levels of BDNF, we have better fear extinction. So, And also we found in a clinical study, so we were treating PTSD with exposure therapy the people who had higher levels of BDNF actually had better response to exposure therapy. So my current trial, getting back to this exercise idea, is it leads to a logical question of if we can increase BDNF in the brain by some way, can we improve exposure therapy response for PTSD? And one of the best ways to increase BDNF is via doing ex aerobic exercise. So it also has a benefit because a lot of people with PTSD have got metabolic syndrome and, you know, might be struggling with their health. So there's a physical health benefit and we also know it improves mood. So the current trial I've got going right now is we're getting people to come in for their 10 sessions of exposure therapy, but they come in early and for 20 minutes they cycle madly on a cyclometer and then all sweaty, they go in their gym clothes straight into the therapy room and do their exposure therapy with the, with the, with the therapist. Um, you know, what I like about that trial is um, a lot of the work when we try and use neuroscience to improve treatment actually involves taking drugs or, you know, pharmacotherapy or brain stimulation. And as a clinician, there's a little bit of a translational gap there. A lot of patients don't want to take a drug for something if they don't have the medical illness that is for it or they're a bit scared of brain stimulation, but most people will do exercise. And so if we actually find this is effective, then, you know, I can really see a great translational potential where we can say to people, well, come in and have a go jogging and then come in for your therapy session or, you know, do your therapy, do your exposure and then go out and, have, and, and go for a jog. Um, if that's going to improve our treatment response, then that's a win. Um, so I guess it's really important because, um, you know, even though exposure therapy is our best evidence-based treatment, only about 50% of people actually have a really good response to it still. And that's been the case for about 30 years. So we really need new innovations. And so I guess the space I work in is how can we use neuroscience to try and improve that? Just taking a step back and thinking about the field very broadly and clinicians who work with people who have experience of trauma. And we've seen this great change worldwide in the last decade or so, a lot more recognition of the importance of trauma. And in fact, in some circles, it's kind of gone to the extreme where we, we're saying all mental illness is caused by trauma. You know, you get that from kind of some people. You, you said that trauma is not just about PTSD. It can have, you know, links with all sorts of issues as, as children develop. I wonder if you could say something about that big picture and what you feel the, the overall influence is of trauma and what it can lead to. Yeah, really great question. And, you know, I think that's um, it's so important we're recognising this as a field because I think we did have the blinkers on. I mean, you know, PTSD was only discovered as a diagnosis or named in the 1980s and that was after the Vietnam War. 
And then it took us another 10 years to realise actually women who are sexually assaulted and men who are sexually assaulted also can develop equally bad PTSD. You know, from there we've recognised different types of trauma, refugee trauma. We've, you know, there's a whole host of different um, traumatic experiences. And, you know, we've done some studies where we've got people who've had a traumatic injury, so a physical injury where they've been badly enough injured they've come into hospital and then we followed them. We had about 1,100 people. We followed them and test, looked at all of their symptoms, not just PTSD, but ran a, you know, a diagnostic instrument. So looked at lots of different psychiatric disorders and we followed them at three months, 12 months, two years, six years. And intriguingly, uh, these were colleagues of mine at um, Phoenix Australia and Richard Bryant and, and um, some really great researchers in Australia in PTSD. And what they found was that actually the most common psychiatric illness coming out of trauma experience is not PTSD. It's actually depression and generalised anxiety. Substance abuse is up there as well, of course. Um, and But look, I think one of the main stories is resilience um, because that was still only in 15% of people or 20% of people, maybe conglomerately about 30% of people are having a, some psychopathology after a trauma experience. The vast majority of people actually recover well and are resilient. Um, and so I think that sometimes that story can get lost. Um, and I think it's actually a really important story. If you've experienced childhood trauma or trauma in your life, it doesn't necessarily equate to, you know, you've got this sentence of, of mental illness forever. Now, that's not denying some people really have major struggles with trauma. And the more cumulative trauma, the more trauma experiences you have, which unfortunately are part of childhood abuse um, particularly, and also first responders or people in war or refugee trauma, then you've got heightened risk with each of those exposures of developing PTSD. Absolutely. But look, I think the other interesting idea is, um, you know, with COVID, you know, sometimes we're using hearing the word trauma used when actually something might be a really horrible experience, but is it traumatic? And I think there's a really grey area of what do we actually define as trauma or not? Um, and so, you know, losing your job or, I mean, you know, um, having a major life change like a divorce or something like that is really a horrible experience, but it's not how we use the term trauma. So when we discuss trauma, we're really talking about either witnessing or experiencing yourself um, an event where your physical integrity is threatened. So it may be a natural disaster. It may be a physical or a sexual assault. Um, you know, it may be um, there is one exception, which is, you know, people who are watching really violent images as part of their work with that cumulative trauma is another category. But what it isn't is relationship breakups. What it isn't is, you know, struggling financially in COVID or losing your job or being retrenched. They're not, not saying they're not 
really hard things to go through. They absolutely are. But that's more, we classify that as adjustment issues that might be leading to depression and anxiety. They're still fully worthy of support and, you know, getting professional help if you really need to, but it's not how we call a trauma experience, if you like. And, you know, sometimes I think um, trauma survivors can find it invalidating when someone's saying, oh, well, my car broke down or I've lost, you know, I don't can't afford to go on my holiday it's so traumatic and it sort of in some ways cheapens the term in in a way and people can find that invalidating so I think it's a a balance it's not all trauma (laughs) there's you know we we need to have clear boundaries around trauma Um, but you know people who really experience full-on trauma as well can actually be resilient um, along those lines I mean, I think the reason I'm asking you is because you've got this really broad experience, you know, a practicing clinical psychologist who also does neuroscience. That's quite an unusual combination. I'm really interested in what you think, um, what your message is to clinicians who come to the conference. Because I think what's interesting about this kind of talk is that I think it will put off a lot of people who don't get the sciencey stuff. You know, there's a lot of researchers who are going to come along to this. But I think in my experience, a lot of clinicians are more comfortable sitting in the talks about qualitative research. And it's all nice and, you know, touchy-feely. And, you know, that's really important stuff as well, obviously. You're talking about neuroscience and talking about this, this, you know, science in a very accessible way. But what would you say to practicing clinicians who say, well, that's not for me. I can't see what the relevance of that to my kind of frontline practice. Why should they be interested in this? Well, I think it will help um, develop an understanding of neuroscience and some of the mechanisms underpinning trauma and also where we might be heading in terms of treatment innovations. And ones that are really accessible and translation, you know, have got really good translational potential. Clinical psychologists actually are, scientists, practitioners. So we actually need, you know, for me, um, you know, where do we get our good treatments from? Where do we get our evidence-based treatments from? And we continually need to innovate. We we are always discovering, you know, different aspects of disorders or new, new issues that are coming up that goes with the science, it goes with clinical practice. So if you're a practicing clinician, your ideas and your recognition of mental health issues changes and evolves as you're growing. Now, you know, as a, as a practicing clinician, you know, I am always, always stumped by something coming in and I'll always be curious going, actually, you know what, I don't know about that. Now, how can I treat that better? Because there are always going to be some clients who don't respond to the standard treatment, you know. And so for me, it's always about we need to tailor our treatments better and to be able to develop better treatments, better tailored treatments, we need to understand the mechanism of why a disorder not only develops, but more importantly, why is it maintained? We actually often can't do anything about the circumstances that have led to the development of the disorder, but what we can do is look at what is maintaining it. And to look at the mechanisms means that we can develop therapies that really target the core. We're not just treating the symptoms. We're not just trying to get the symptom down. Put a Band-Aid on it is what I think that really effectively is. You know, this is not to deny the role of support 
and empathy and all of the other really, you know, developing trust. I mean, those things are so powerful in a therapy room. But in and of themselves, they're not enough, especially when we're working with trauma and anxiety disorders. We actually need to look at what are the mechanisms. And, you know, I think... As a practising clinician, what I'd like to think is most clinicians out there are always wanting to get the best treatments for their patients, you know. A whole other area we haven't even touched the sides of yet but is really crucial, I think, to where the field needs to go is the question of what works for who because we still don't know. So in, in PTSD, we've got a, a range of really effective treatments that are all gold standard and evidence-based. We've got EMDR. We've got cognitive processing therapy, which is more of a cognitive intervention. And we've got exposure-based therapies. Um, and, you know, what is going to work better for who? We don't actually know. And so there's no guidance there. And we need science and research to really understand that. Is that are our exposure therapies going to work equally as well for adolescents as they do for adults? There's some intriguing research coming out from Rick Richardson and Brom Graham's groups in um, at UNSW that adolescent rats actually have impaired fear extinction learning compared to adult rats. And so if fear extinctions underpinning exposure therapy are exposure therapies as we're rolling them out for adults appropriate for adolescents or do we need to change them or alter them in some way to improve treatment response? So there is just so much we can do, you know, and I mean I'm working more on the biological and neuroscience side but importantly there's also the cognitive side. We know with many of our mental health disorders that people's belief structures are so powerful. Their, their view of themselves, of the world, can really change, especially in depression, but also in trauma. People can start to develop a mind, a hypervigilant mindset where they're thinking everything's going to be threatening and they can't discriminate threat from safety. So, you know, we also need to look at that cognitive level because it interacts with the biology. Our minds and our bodies are always interacting. Um, so there's just so much there that I think we need every clinician on board to be doing research <laughs> so we get a critical mass to get these answers. Mm -hmm.